Aren't you loving Marvel? Marvel. <laughs> All right. Um, so I think what we'll do today is today we'll still be Paradise Lost um, because we barely scratched the surface. Um, Monday, just to remind you, you have an exam. Um, what we'll do is talk about Marvel for half an hour, and then you'll have a half hour exam for which you can take an hour. Um, so it should at most take you half an hour to do, even if you do it like. Um, the snail and those snail jokes. Um, it should still only take you half an hour to do. It really is, did you do the reading and did you study? It doesn't take more than half. I mean, the Supreme Court decides the fate of health care in six hours. So we can figure out whether your fate as to how much studying you did in half an hour. And that's what we'll do. Um, the, so you guys should come. You should take it, too, just for fun. I mean, if you want. Um, how many people um, want to do, we, we talked about a makeup class on Wednesday, which is study day. If we do do such a thing, how many of you will come, especially since it's after the exam? This would be indicating that you actually care. Um, if yeah. we did, would we be talking more about Paradise Lost? We'd be probably talking more about Marvell, since we won't have that much. Could we, talk more about Paradise? we could talk about, we could talk about whatever people want to talk about. Um, we could decide, we could see who comes. Um, we could have chicken salad. Um, okay, so how many people would come if we had a class? It would probably be Wednesday morning. Well, okay, what works for people? If we do it Wednesday, there's some stuff that I have to do Wednesday, um, but not that much. So how many people would come if it were Wednesday morning? Um, Okay, so Wednesday morning, raise them high. Um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Your hand's not up, right, Barbara? Okay, so seven, eight, eight and a half. Um, Wednesday afternoon. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay, so it sounds like if we do it, we should do it Wednesday morning. Um, and so nine. Okay. Uh, ten. Okay, so <laughs> eleven. I don't think I can do eleven. All right, so let's try. So have so raise them high for nine, or we could say nine thirty. Is nine thirty better for people? No, nine thirty stinks. Okay, not nine a.m. How many? One, two, two and a half. Yeah. Okay. Two, uh, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Oh, I was thinking we had. No. Okay, let's say 9 a.m. Wednesday. I'll get a room, or, or unless there's strong desire for 10. Okay, I will get a room, I hope this room, for 9 on Wednesday. Um, and I will let you know, um, probably on latte, but certainly um, by Monday. Okay, so everyone's clear on everything? It all makes sense? Um, all right, so um, just to remind you, um, we will have a half-hour discussion of Marvell on Monday. Then there will be the half-hour-long test, which should really only take you 10 or 15 minutes, but which you can have the whole hour for. <laughs> yeah? Our last paper, do you want it emailed or in your mailbox? Sure. <laughs> Logic. It's known as a disjunction. Both things can be true. Either way is fine.
Um, don't do both because then I'll be confused. Um, okay, so what we were talking about, we're, we're really going to try to do a forced-ish march through Paradise Lost now, which means that we'll, um, alas, be missing a lot, but that shouldn't surprise you too much given how much time we've spent on half few lines. Um, but there you go. Um, what we were talking about on Monday was, um, in general, the spectrum, or gradient, you could say, of how much attention, um, how much sympathy, how much care, how much um, acknowledgement that the human characters, and again, to repeat one last time, by human I mean that in what you could call a Kantian sense, characters um, to whom human dignity is owed, that is, characters from humans um, through at least some angels, whether rebel or not rebel, all the way up to the sun and perhaps all the way up to God. Um, Maybe the best way to define it is to say characters who are capable of owing human dignity to others. Characters capable of being, of its being demanded of them that they acknowledge the human dignity of figures like them. So we can demand of the angels, or Adam and Eve can demand of the angels that the angels acknowledge their having human dignity. Um, Satan can and does demand that he be granted the dignity of such a figure, um, of a figure who, um, of whom it can be demanded that he should um, grant human dignity to human beings. Um, this is just basically a way of distinguishing between um, moral and no need to be moral beings within Paradise Lost. There's no need for the animals to be moral. There's not some sense that um, wild animals, even after the fall, before the fall they're all fine, they're all tame, but there's no sense that after the fall that wild animals in some sense are evil because they um, hunt um, or kill each other for food. Um, that's just what they are, how they are, um, the sorts of beings they are. But humans are capable of moral choice, even after the fall. One of the things God says is that um, through um, giving us conscience, um, his umpire conscience, um, we will still be capable of moral choice even after the fall. So it's figures capable of moral choice. Now, what that moral choice is about, this is um, what we were saying on Monday, what that moral choice takes as its object is um, a sense of obligation or a sense of moral commitment specifically to other beings with moral choice. And the word that Milton uses for that, or the concept that Milton uses for that, is the concept of judgment. That is to say that we are capable of judging 
God. It's not only what standard um, theology will tell us, which is that God is capable of judging us and does judge us and turns out to find us pretty wanting, um, but we're capable of judging the rightness of God's judging us. And that's what it means for Milton to say that he's come to justify the ways of God and those to whom he will justify the ways of God are humans. So it's not only that God gets to judge us as the sun comes to judge Adam and Eve after they eat the fruit and um, finds out what they've done and shows them mercy despite what they've done and despite his judgment. Um, his judgment is an accurate one. Um, and then he shows us mercy. He doesn't think it wrong to clothe his enemies. Um, and clothing his enemies, what God does, clothing his enemies, um, or what the sun does, clothing his enemies, that's something that we're supposed to be and are, or at least um, the reader of Paradise Lost, that, that um, invented being, the reader of Paradise Lost, um, judges the sun as morally good for doing that for us. That's something that also um, enters into our capacity for judgment. Michael shows Adam the whole history of humanity after the fall, the history of Adam and Eve's descendants after the fall. And Adam judges what he sees. He's capable of that. That's what it means to be human, is to have a moral idea of other humans who are capable of judgment. So that's what's focused in those first lines of the invocation of Book One, um, justifying the ways of God to men. That despite the fact that we have lost Eden, that we live in a world of woe, that death has come into our world, um, we can still make this judgment. And But again, the really crucial thing is what it is we judge. Not who we judge. We judge people like us, that is, souls that can make judgments. But what it is we judge is the judgments that others make. And that's the um, virtuous or self-amplifying circle. That is to say, what we judge, who we judge as good, are those who judge well and who, those whose judgments are themselves not unfair, and probably even more so, those whose judgments are merciful are those whom we judge to be good. So we judge others by the way they judge. This is a clear and deep and um, ubiquitous fact about human beings. All you have to do is look at comments on some Drudge Report linked website and look at the flame wars that go occurring in comments where um, people just get angry at each other for the way they judge Obama or the way they judge Romney or the way they judge um, the Supreme Court or the way they judge um, whoever. Um, trolls are those who supposedly are judging 
um, in ways that those who are accusing them of being trolls regard as um, beneath contempt. So it's their judgments that are beneath contempt. But of course, if you, um, how you feel about someone accusing someone else of being a troll um, also is a sense of um, whether you think that's a fair thing that you can say about someone, no matter how harsh their judgments are, no matter how harsh their comments are. So if you ever get involved um, in a flame war in comments or see um, the kind of sewage that appears in those comments, um, even that sewage is a sign of the moral um, commitments of people to judge others on the basis of the judgments those others are making, to judge others on the basis of whether those others are making sufficiently um, morally serious judgments of those that we're also judging. Does this make sense to people? I mean, in a way, it's a defense of indignation. Um, but, you know, indignation is, should be defended. I mean, it leads to harm, but its impulses are, um, you could say moralistic, but that means also moral. Annalisa. This is just a random thought, but you said that hu human beings are the ones capable of moral choice. So would calling someone a troll imply that because their concept of morality and judgment is so inept, they're not even human? That's why you might get you might say that someone who who closes down conversation by saying why are you why are you even answering that troll um, is themselves doing the very thing that they're accusing the other person of doing. So calling someone a troll it depends how you read that. But calling someone a troll um, in in the first instance looks like the person who's doing who's calling someone a troll is saying they don't do, they're they're not they're not rising up to the level that is demanded of human judgment. Um, but it can be, that can be um, the pot calling the, pe the kettle black. Um, that is to say, it can be a version of um, the very fact that you're doing that means you're doing the same thing as what you're accusing, and maybe rightly accusing that person of doing. That's how, that's how you can get a death spiral, which is frequently what happens in those comments, um, of people behaving badly because they're judging that other people are behaving badly. That can be the death spiral that you see, at least in some of the rebel angels, um, maybe even in Satan himself, um, sees what he takes to be bad behavior and therefore spitefully behaves badly himself, causing others to be spiteful towards him, and so on. So this is a spiral that can go either way. Um, when you judge the judgments of others, you know, that can, that can be um, self-righteousness is one negative term for judging the judgments of others. I judge better than you. That's what self-righteousness means, is my morality is better and more subtle and deeper than yours. So go screw yourself, which doesn't really sound like deep and subtle and delicate morality. And that's the paradox of self-righteousness, is that it never seems righteous. Um, but the good version of it is the version in which um, figures see um, what other figures are doing and see the, um, the, the, the good impulses behind what other figures are doing. So to give you an example, um, let's now turn to book three um, and look at 
Um, start at line 80. Or, um, yeah, I guess start at line 56 to... to um, I'm just trying to think whether we should do the invocation of book three. We should. You can't not do the invocation of book three. Start at line one. Hail, holy light, offspring of heaven, firstborn, or of the eternal, co-eternal be, may I express thee unblamed, says Milton. He is now returned from the precincts of darkness to those of light. Um, Satan and darkness visible and hell and chaos and old night have been the topics of the first two books of Paradise Lost, but now it's heaven and the precincts of light. So he hails, he the blind poet hails light. Why? Since God is light and never but in unapproached light dwelt from eternity, dwelt then in thee. So God always lived in light from eternity. God is light and dwelled in light. Bright effluence of bright essence in create. So God is what flows out. Sorry, God, light is what flows out of God. The effluence is what flows out of God's essence. But of course, God is bright. God's bright essence. So the bright effluence, that's the brightness of light, comes out of the brightness of the essence, but the very idea of brightness is that light comes from it. So God and light are one, but light is what reaches us from God because God is bright. So it's not that little bits of God are always striking our eyes, but the very brightness of God is what gets expressed within light because he is light. And of course his first word is... First thing God ever said? Let there be light. Let there be light. And there was light. Um, that's why the Son of God is the Word of God, because the Word of God is what God said, namely, fiat lux, let there be light. So, or hearest thou rather pure ethereal stream whose fountain who shall tell? Um, is that what would be a better way of describing you? Before the sun, before the heavens thou wert. So light is prior to the sun. That's pretty orthodox. The sun and the moon are created on the fourth day. But the first thing God says is let there be light. Um, this is um, a well-known um, important piece of information for those who believe Genesis and a well-known inconsistency for those who see Genesis as coming from um, three different sources, the P writer, the J writer, and the E writer, um, which we talked about a little bit. Um, but Milton is simply taking, yeah, there's light, and eventually there's the sun and the moon, but light is first. That's the first thing that God created. Before the sun, before the heavens thou wert. And at the voice of God, that is God saying, fiat lux, at the voice of God, as with a mantle, didst invest the rising world of waters, dark and deep, one from the void and formless infinite. Thee, light, I revisit now with bolder wing, escape the Stygian pool. The Stygian pool, Stygian is the adjective from the river Styx. 
The Stygian pool is hell itself, the dark lake of hell. Now I have escaped the Stygian pool, like who else? Satan. Satan. Um, interesting, because he's tracking Satan. Um, he is always, or almost always, um, within sight of Satan. The narrator of Paradise Lost is, even though he's about to go to heaven, whereas Satan is only going to earth. Um, the heaven he goes to is one where God and the Son are watching Satan. So escape the Stygian pool, though long detained in that obscure sojourn, while in my flight through utter and through middle darkness born, with other notes than to the Orphean lyre I sung of chaos and eternal night, taught by the heavenly muse to venture down the dark descent and up to reascend. Um, again, we talked about this, but um, he's thinking here of Virgil, um, describing Aeneas's descent into the underworld, taught as Aeneas is by the Cumaean Sibyl, how to descend and then to reascend again from the underworld. But it's Milton, the poet, who is taught by the heavenly muse to venture down the dark descent and up to reascend, though hard and rare. Thee, again, O light, I revisit safe and feel thy sovereign vital lamp. He feels the light on his face. But thou revisits not these eyes, but he's blind. Thou revisits not these eyes that roll in vain to find thy piercing ray and find no dawn. So thick a drop serene hath quenched their orbs or dim suffusion veiled. So he tries to see. He knows he's rolling his eyes for light, but he can't see. Yet, despite my blindness, yet not the more, cease I to wander where the muses haunt clear spring or shady grove or sunny hill, smit with the love of sacred song. So I still go to the places that the muses haunt. And all these visual descriptions of where the muses are, clear spring, shady grove, sunny hill, that's where he also goes, smit with the love of sacred song. Who is? Where does, that's, a, that's an absolute construction. That is, what you have is a participle um, describing someone or something that is smit with the love of sacred song. Who? Milton. Okay, so I, who am smit with the love of sacred song, go where the muses go. Other possibility? Well, the narrator or Milton. Um, grammatically, what's the other possibility? Yeah. The place that he's going is smit with the love of sacred song? Huh. Um, could be... Um, I think that's not a natural reading. It's grammatically, it's perfectly natural. I just think that it's not um, um, uh, semantically that natural. Yeah. The muses? The muses, yeah. The muses who are smit with the love of sacred song. I go where they go because they too are smit with the love of sacred song, the song that comes from God or from light or from both. So notice that we have um, Milton's Latinate diction 
allows for ambiguities as to um, what is being characterized in these past participle phrases. And those ambiguities in Milton will frequently be of the both and variety. I go there smit with the love of sacred songs because the muses are there who are also smit with the love of sacred song. This is where those smit with the love of sacred song go. Um, this isn't an important example of this, except that it's, the, it's a kind of purpose pitch. That is, Milton is, um, is alerting you to the possibility of this ambiguity, subliminally, subconsciously alerting you to it. And as I say, in most cases, it's both and in Paradise Lost, but not always. And we're, there's a reason um, that I'm alerting you to the fact that he's alerting you to this. Um, but chief, these Zion and the flowery brooks beneath that wash thy hallowed feet and warbling flow, nightly I visit. Nightly, because he composes at night. He will tell us this again later. Also, because it's always dark where he is. Um, his Sonnet 23, which you should be reading in um, the Fowler, um, describes his thinking that he saw his dead wife. Um, and the last line of the sonnet is, I waked, she fled, and day brought back my night. So it's always night for him. So nightly I visit, nor sometimes, that is not even sometimes do I forget, those other two equaled with me in fate, so were I equaled with them in renown. So when I do this, I remember those other two poets who had the same fate as I did, namely blindness. May I have the same renown, or would that I could have the same renown as the poet that they did. Who are they? Blind Thamorous and Blind Myonides. So Thamorous, you will, of course, recognize as from the Iliad, the poet who challenged the muses to um, a singing contest, which was a bad idea. Um, Homer <coughs> describes him in the catalog of ships in the Iliad and says that what the muses did to him when they lost is they punished him by destroying his memory and left him a singer without a memory, that is, a singer who could not sing. And Maonides is himself Homer. So I wish that, given the, that I have the fate of Thamorous, who was also blinded, and of Homer, who was blind, may I also be a poet like them. Or two others, two prophets, and Ty Tiresias and Phineas, prophets old, both of whom also were struck blind by the gods. So I can't see, but that doesn't prevent me from perhaps being a great poet or comparing myself to the great poets, Thamorous and Homer, or to the great prophets, Tiresias and Phineas. Then so I visit them nightly, then I feed on thoughts that voluntary move harmonious numbers. So I think about things, and the poetry comes out spontaneously, as with nightingales, as the wakeful bird sings darkling, 
and in shadiest covert hid tunes her nocturnal note. Thus with the year seasons return, but not to me returns day, or the sweet approach of even or morn, or sight of vernal bloom, or summer's rose, or flocks, or herds, or human face divine. And that phrase justifies all of Milton's Latinism, human face divine. It's not proper English. It's poetic, sure, but it's a kind of poetry that Milton himself invented. But in Latin, the adjectives can go on either side of the noun. In English, adjectives are almost always before a noun. In French, they're almost always after. In Latin, they can go anywhere. And that allows Milton to give you a phrase like human face divine, which can simply say that the human face is divine, that the divine face is human, the human face divine. That's what he can't see, but that's what he thinks, is that the human face is divine. But he can't see it. But cloud instead, and ever during dark, surrounds me from the cheerful ways of men cut off. And for the book of knowledge fair presented with an universal blank of nature's works to me expunged and raised in wisdom at one entrance quite shut out. So he needs inner light, so much the rather thou celestial light shine inward. And the mind, through all her powers, irradiate their plant eyes, all mist from thence purge and disperse, that I may see and tell of things invisible to mortal sight. So he can see, but only in the imagination, that I may see and tell of things invisible to mortal sight. So that's the invocation to light. And now the story picks up. Now had the Almighty Father from above from the pure Empyrean where, it, where he sits, high throned above all height, bent down his eye, his own works, and their works at once to view. So there we immediately get that doubleness. He looks at his works, which include all created beings. And he looks at what those beings do, his works and their works at once to view. About him all the sanctities of heaven stood thick as stars, and from his sight received beatitude past utterance. On his right the radiant image of his glory sat, his only son. On earth he first beheld our two first parents, yet the only two of mankind in the happy garden place reaping immortal fruits of joy and love. So there we get a little bit more that fruit means um, the results of joy and love, not that there are pineapples and bananas and mangoes in Eden, but the fruits of joy and love. Uninterrupted joy, unrivaled love in blissful solitude. He then surveyed hell and the gulf between and Satan there, coasting the wall of heaven on this side night in the dun air sublime and ready now to stoop with wearied wings and willing feet on the bare outside of this world 
that seemed fair, firm land, embosomed without firmament, uncertain which, in ocean or in air. So notice here that, um, you may not have noticed, but what Milton is describing here is Copernican astronomy. That is, Satan is coming to our world, which looks firm, and yet it's floating in space, uncertain which, in ocean or in air. Satan didn't realize that this was, this was the astronomical um, layout either until now, until he was thrown from heaven. So there's this incredibly beautiful and delicate moment where you can maybe recover the novelty of the heliocentric view of the universe that Milton's friend Galileo pretty much proved, which is that we're in space. We're just floating in space. This isn't an absolute firmness below everything else, but we're just in space like everything else. And God is watching this, and Satan is surprised by this. Him God beholding from his prospect high, wherein past, present, future he beholds, thus to his only son foreseeing spake. And here's what God says, only begotten son, seest thou what rage transports our adversary? What does transports mean? What's that word mean? Powers. Powers. Uh, what does it literally mean? What does a transportation system do? It's a vehicle that moves it. Yeah, it carries a cross. Literally, to transport means to carry a cross. Um, trans, across, port, porter, um, to carry. Um, so to be, we use the we use the metaphor to be transported by rage. It's sort of like to jump out of your skin, to be beside yourself. All of those are ideas that somehow an emotion like rage can um, lift you from where you are and put you somewhere else. Um, God is using that metaphorical idea, but He's also using it literally. Um, he's so full of rage that he's been transported out of hell. He's so transported by rage that he's on earth, or almost on earth right now. See, is that what rage transports our adversary? What is the word adversary in Aramaic, anyone? Satan. Satan, yeah. So the word adversary, the word Satan, if you don't know, now you do. The word Satan means adversary. First appears in the book of Job. Um, Satan is the adversary to Job and to mankind in the courts of heaven. So seest thou what rage transports our adversary, whom no bounds prescribe, no bars of hell, nor all the chains heaped on him there, nor yet the main abyss wide interrupt can hold. So what is God saying there? Yeah. He would have been able to get out no matter what because he's so angry. Yeah. So, how omnipotent is God then? But it said, it said not here, but when he gets out, it says he only, he said he only got out because God left. Because of the high permission of all ruling heaven. Yeah. Yeah. So, here's God saying one thing and the narrator said something else. Um, yeah. Well, and it's the same thing that happens later with God being 
at first saying, like, I'm going to give man every opportunity to resist, and we'll see what happens. And then afterwards, after man falls, he's like, well, he was always going to fall. Yeah. Like, thanks, dude. Right. Yeah. Um, what This wouldn't be so hard to solve if we took, um, if we humanized God a whole lot. That is to say, what you're getting here, and what you'll actually get several times in Paradise Lost, is God making a sarcastic joke at Satan's expense. And what he's saying is, you know, I really tried, but he's so angry. Um, look at him. Um, nothing could stop him. Now, is the son supposed to think, wow, Satan is angry? Or is he supposed to think, well, um, that's kind of a lame joke, but I get it. It's a joke. Um, later, that's essentially what he'll say. If you look at um, book six of Paradise Lost, um, uh, hang on a sec. Give me just one second. I can quote it for you, but I want to find the exact place so you can underline it. Um, why am I not finding this? Um, Okay, well, somewhere what he says is, um, oh, here it is. Um, book, sorry, book five, that was the problem. Book five, line 719. Um, God, at line 714, sees without the light from the golden lamps that burn nightly before him, um, saw without their light rebellion rising. Saw in whom, how spread among the sons of morn, remember Lucifer is the son of the morning, what multitudes were banded to oppose his high decree, and smiling to his only son, thus said, Son, thou in whom my glory I behold in full resplendence, heir of all my might, nearly it now concerns us to be sure of our omnipotence. And with what arms we mean to hold what anciently we claim of deity or empire. So, what's he saying there? Paraphrase that. He sees all the rebel angels gathering to fight against him. And so what does he say to the son? Verify our strength. Um, verify for whom? For ourselves. Okay, yeah. 
nearly it now concerns us to be sure of our omnipotence. What does that suggest? How sure is he? Not so much. Not entirely, yeah. He's concerned. <clears throat> nearly it now concerns us to be sure of our omnipotence and with what arms we mean to hold what anciently we claim of deity or empire. We have to figure out how we're going to keep power. We claim it, but now we're going to be tested to see whether we can keep it. How surprised would Satan be to hear God saying this? <laughs> two, two completely different answers. Um, I, think, I think it depends what's Satan when. But Satan as a rebel, I think the answer is not at all. Satan thinks that God is holding power because people think he has power, but not because he really deserves it. Satan is surprised to lose as badly as he does because, as he says, in hell, we didn't know his might before. Now we do. Um, but before that, it seemed like he was only ruling out of custom and awe, not because he deserved to rule. Well, God seems to be saying something similar. Look at this rebellion. This is serious stuff. The threat level is up at red. This is, we have to be careful. So I think we should be surprised by God saying that too. That really seems like Satan's view of God's power as simply being very strong, but not infinite. Whereas the idea of omnipotence is that it is infinite. That Satan will later say that he durst defy the omnipotent to arms. And what makes that sublime is that he's going against, he's, he's, that's an absolutely forlorn hope for a finite being to go against the omnipotent. But at this point in the story, Satan doesn't know that God really is omnipotent. He knows he's powerful. He just doesn't know that he's omnipotent. And now we could say, well, he should have known. If his theology were better, he would have known. Um, but he didn't know. But then suddenly God is saying, we have to be careful. Nearly it now concerns us to be sure of our omnipotence. You know, this is like what King Charles might have said uh, against the rebels who Milton supported, who were starting the English Revolution. So let's go on with that. Um, Such a foe is rising who intends to erect his throne equal to ours throughout the spacious north. So hang on to that phrase, such a foe. God, what a foe he is. Well, God doesn't say God. He says, me, what a foe he is. <laughs> Nor so content hath in his thought to try in battle what our power is or our right. Let us advise. That is, let's discuss this. Let's, have, uh, let, let's take advice on this matter. And to this hazard, draw what speed, with speed what force is left and all employ in our defense, lest unawares we lose this our high place, our sanctuary, our hill. So this is God who sees a genuine threat happening. We have to make sure to consolidate the forces that we have left. We have to take advice. Everything is upon the hazard. That is, hazard is danger. So 
this should be very surprising until you see the sun's response, which explains it, but only by introducing a new surprise. To whom the sun, with calm aspect and clear lightning divine, ineffable, serene, made answer. Mighty Father, thou thy foes justly hast in derision, and secure laughst at their vain designs and tumults vain. So, what is the sun basically saying? You're right to laugh. Yeah. You're right to laugh. Well, you're right to laugh. Love the sarcasm is basically what he's saying. So what he's telling us is that he's interpreting, and we can trust his interpretation pretty much, what God just said is sarcasm. That God is saying, oh, Satan, I'm so scared. Boy, we've really got to be careful because he might dethrone us. And then the son says, um, you're right to make fun of them. Now, this isn't the first time that the son has interpreted the father. In a way, that's his job. Um, what is more interesting is that he tends to interpret the father to himself. And um, so there is a puzzle here, not as God really omnipotent, but how much does God expect the son to understand what he's saying? So there are two there, there are three possibilities, but I think we're just going to say that the first one isn't real, which is that God really is worried about Satan. I just don't think he is. I don't think that's right. Um, you could argue that if you need a paper topic, voila, if you believe it. But I don't think that's right. Possibility number two is that God hides his strength not only from the rebel angels and not only from the loyal angels, but from the sun too. That is that what God is saying here is essentially a lie, which is... Um, the kind of lie that figures in power will tell, which is things are more dangerous than you know. You should therefore give me more power. That's a standard thing that you, you have all lived through your entire adult lives. That idea of dangers, you know, that we're very powerful and yet there are dangers everywhere. So the defense budget has to be quintupled. Um, and it could be that God is lying because he successfully hides how secure he actually is in his power. That the way he tests loyalty, the way he gets loyalty, the way he manipulates other souls in heaven is not to tell them the way things really are. And then what the son, who knows how things really are, adroitly does, is not to say, oh God, you're lying, why are you doing that? But is to say, good joke. As though God is simply not lying, but intending to make a joke. Um, so it's a, it can, it, that can be a socially very apt way for the son to not condone a falsehood that God is saying while not seeming to be accusing God of a falsehood. 
simply by saying good joke, good one. And that gives God a way to walk it back. Yeah, you liked that, didn't you, is, is what God would respond. Or the third possibility is that it just is a joke, that, that um, if you were doing the play version of Paradise Lost, and remember I told you Paradise Lost was originally intended as a play, God would be saying this the way, you know, John Lithgow would be the right person to play God, um, famous for his um, wonderful um, uh, performances of sarcasm. Oh, I'm so scared. Um, so I think really the second two are the possibilities. But that at least tells us more about what's going on in book three when he says, Seest thou what rage transports our adversary, whom no bounds prescribe, no bars of hell, nor all the chains heaped on him there, nor yet the main abyss wide interrupt can hold. So that can either be a lie, try to keep him down but couldn't, or it can be a joke. As you all know, the difference between lying and joking um, can be blurred. And when you catch someone in a lie, they can claim it's a joke. If all morality comes from God, then isn't everything he says the truth, even if he's not? Well, but maybe all morality doesn't come from God. That would be why we could judge him. That's so that's the Euthyphro idea. That's why we made the sun's image. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but again, if God's ways can be justified, it means they're not automatically justified. It means that... that um, there are circumstances in which you could imagine they would need justification. That that's not a that's not um, an incoherent thought. The way saying that two plus two equals five would be an incoherent thought. Yeah. Can you go over again Milton's religion and how he felt about God? Because I know it says in the beginning he was trying to justify the ways of God to men, but I don't feel like he does. And I don't know if that's something he did on purpose. Or well, it's hotly debated. Um, and remember what Blake said, that Milton was of the devil's party without knowing it. So there are basically three, um, with me as the third point of view, there are three points of view about Paradise Lost. There are three ideas. Um, one is Milton is on God's side. And what you have to learn is that if you find Satan um, appealing in any way, that's like taking Turkish taffy from, uh, or Turkish delight from the White Witch. Um, guess whose view that is? C.S. Lewis's. Um, C.S. Lewis, who justified burning witches, um, even though he wasn't a jerk in his personal life and, in fact, was not even a male chauvinist. But he said, look, you know, the reason it's wrong to burn witches um, the way they did at Salem, is surely because they weren't witches, not because it's wrong to burn witches. Um, because if you think about real witches and what real witches would be, agents of Satan trying to hurt human beings and doing the, all these terrible things, if anyone should be burned, these foul and disgusting quizlings should be burned. Um, so that's kind of a harsh thing to say in the context of a situation in which real human beings were burned. Um, that, yeah, it's too bad because they weren't witches. Um, instead of saying, even thinking about burning witches, once we see what that led to, is indefensible, which is what I think he should have said. Um, so his view 
of Paradise Lost. He wrote a book called A Preface to Paradise Lost, and in writing The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, he's um, rewriting Paradise Lost, as so many writers have. Um, his view of Paradise Lost is, well, of course Satan is charismatic. How could a third of heaven f have followed him if he wasn't charismatic? Obviously he's charismatic. Um, and the thing you're supposed to realize is, oh, noes, I found Satan charismatic. Now I realize that I really am a fallen being because I thought that, because I was attracted to the way he was a rebel. I was attracted to his fighting against God. I have to think about whether I may not in fact be evil even if I think I'm not. Whether what my own intuitions as to what courage and bravery and goodness are might not be wrong. After all, Milton himself says, Lewis doesn't say the narrator, but he says Milton himself says that look at the rebel angels. What do they do in hell? Well, they play music and they argue philosophy. And what you should learn from this is that even devils in hell are not without moral virtues. And so you shouldn't think, oh, I'm a kind of pretty good guy. I'll probably be saved because I once donated blood. Um, devils in hell donated blood for each other. Um, they showed courage, they showed loyalty, they stood faithful. Um, and so you have to realize that your own judgment of whether you're basically um, a savable person or not is the judgment of someone who can't make that judgment. And if you suddenly start feeling scared and thinking maybe I'm wrong, and the fact that I'm attracted to Satan might show that I'm wrong, then you're getting from Paradise Lost what you're supposed to be getting from it. So that's C.S. Lewis's view. Yeah. Are things always, or have they always been so um, divisive? Like, has there always been, like, white and black when it comes to, like, how people see this book? Like, because, like, for me, it was more so that, like, I understood why he did it. I understood why he thought he was doing it. But I still didn't think he was right. And, like, it's, from what you've been telling us, it seems like, people are supposed to either say, no, he is like absolutely wrong, what, what the hell was he thinking? Or like, no, I'm on his side. And okay, so I think the problem is that both God and Satan take the view that it is black and white. So that's something they share, and that's what I want to get to, is their shared view of the stakes. So one version of the black and white view is if you're attracted to Satan, you should really um, think about that. You should go to your room and think about what you are thinking. <laughs> but, uh, but if that's true, we can't use the premise that men are able to read. Well, that would be a problem. Exactly. That would be one problem. Yeah. Unless you say it takes all of Paradise Lost to do the hard work of thinking this. Um, Emily. Um, for our papers, could we write a defense of one interpretation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> What are we supposed to then make of the fact that, like, fallen angels like Belial or Moloch are clearly, like, much worse. They're more brutish. They're more selfish. Yeah, so this they is... Were, they were angels, too. But Satan at least has that whole monologue of, like, his sort of Gethsemane yeah. moment of, should I do what you have yeah, which, me which, I which we're Yeah, which we'll get to in a, in a minute. 
Or like, five or ten. Why is Satan therefore the adversary when all of his followers are shittier than him? <laughs> because they are also um, so. Well, they're they're just clearly shallow. I mean, they're minions, um, and so they have minion characters. Um, they form a minion. Um, they have minion characters. That is that they they couldn't do this themselves. And part of the point is that. Um, the adversary to God has to be someone who is on a cosmic scale. Right, but like just as um, Abdiel was, he switched sides, doesn't that, the fact that Satan's followers are so small-minded, doesn't that also indicate that there could also be people in heaven who could have fallen but just didn't? Yeah, oh yeah, that, that you, would, you would certainly think that that was true. That is that... I mean, again, there, look, there are wheels within wheels here, and you can argue, you know, God, God always gave Satan the worst third, the bottom, the right. bottom third of those in heaven because he knew Satan was going to rebel. But he put Abdiel in also because he knew that Abdiel would show that they were free not to. So that's one argument. The other argument is, well, yeah, there actually do seem like a lot of unfallen angels who, um, who would also end up in... Um, um, that circle of hell that Dante talks about, which is the circle of those who didn't take sides. Um, that is, it's, it's um, not limbo, or maybe it is limbo. It's one of the outskirts of hell. It's, it's very near the beginning of the inferno. Um, those who didn't take sides between God and Satan, the fence-sitters, the, the neutral types, the, you know, Austrians. Um, and um, I think there's a strong implication of that, which we'll see in a minute. Um, and then it becomes a matter of luck. Um, those who did make a choice, um, either they made a choice to stay with Satan, there were some who made the choice and some who didn't have to. Um, but So this leads to the second possibility. The second possibility is, of course, Milton was on Satan's side. He was, a, to, again, to quote Blake, he was a true poet and of the devil's party, but then Blake adds, without knowing it. And the 20th century version of this um, is by um, C.S. Lewis's great adversary as a critic, the critic William Empson, who wrote a book called Milton's God. Um, and um, what he basically says is um, Milton's poem is so good because he was so honest in writing it. He was trying to justify the ways of God to men, but boy, was he having trouble doing that because he had to be, because he, Milton, was a morally good person who was trying to make um, a morally impossible argument. And um, so what he does is he works really hard, and finally he fails and um, decides that he's just got to turn Satan into a worse character. So by the time you get to Satan in book nine, he's not the same Satan as the Satan of the first two books or the first four books. He's now become, to quote Milton, stupidly good. That is, he's so impressed by paradise that he stops for a minute and he just stands there stupidly good. But the, Milton, the Satan of book nine and then the Satan who expects to hear applause but gets hissed in hell, um, that's Milton desperately trying to make a theology work that he himself couldn't believe in. So that would be, um, that would be a sort of um, 
what we would be reading in Paradise Lost is a document of conflict between what Milton wanted to believe and what he did believe. And what makes Paradise so good is how uh, Paradise Lost so good is how much of what Milton actually did did believe is in it. Yeah. Do you think it would be a valid argument in defense of Milton to state that that's just a byproduct of not of being away from God that you start to lose that that refinement that like it's kind of like a catch-22, that you were thrown away from God because of a certain aspect of yourself, namely rebellion, or, or you know, thinking that you're better than you are, and because you are away from God, it gets worse. Like, you, you yeah. won't ever have a chance to redeem yourself, because the longer you're away from grace, that, like, the more gnarled and, like... Because yeah. Milton kind of implied that with the whole, like, Gabriel not recognizing him. Right, right. Um, and so... Like, would it just be then that, but then to the degree of however many years he's been away, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, no, I think so. And I think that um, there, there are various ways that you could uh, measure that and um, see, see that kind of development occurring. Um, so, you know, I think that's, again, there, there are cycles within cycles here. But, yeah, I think that that's possible um, or even probable. Um, and a way of asking that then would be to say, is it forced or is it natural for Satan to become what he becomes by books 9 and 10? Um, and um, I think there's, there's a very good argument to make for its being natural. Um, it's not... It's certainly more natural than anything in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Let's put it that way. Or more natural than... Have you read it recently? Um, no. I don't know. I read it as a kid. Yeah, try reading. Well, don't reread it because I don't want to spoil it any more than I already have. <laughs> um, okay. Um, then the third possibility is what, my, what I think is true, um, which is that the narrator actually learns that the version of God that he's producing before the fall. Um, the self-righteous, huffy, sarcastic, jeering version of God um, is wrong. And that everything good about Satan um, comes from aspects of Satan's character that are admirable, um, but that get somewhat perverted in Satan. And that what we have to learn in Paradise Lost is the, ad, the more admirable version of the admirable qualities of Satan's characters. And that character, and that's what I hope we're going to get to. But let's just look at, at some more about God in the first half. So, um, he wings his way not far off heaven. This is still book three, line 88 now. Um, sorry, look at, look at um, what rage transports our adversary, line 84 whom, or 82, whom no bounds prescribed. No bars of hell, nor all the chains heaped on him there, nor yet the main abyss wide interrupt can hold. That is, can keep him widely interrupted from earth. So bent he seems on desperate revenge that shall redound upon his own rebellious head. So everything he does is going to just, just rebound back on him. And now, through all restraint broke loose, not at all true, through some restraint broke loose, but not through all, he wings his way not far off heaven in the precincts of light directly towards this new created world and man there placed 
with purpose to assay if him by force he can destroy, or worse, by some false guile pervert. Okay, so, paraphrase that. Here he is going directly towards this new, toward the new created world, and man there placed, with purpose to assay if him by force he can destroy, or worse, by some false guile pervert. Um, paraphrase. Kill him or trick him, but and just paraphrase the whole thing. Them. Sorry? It would be worse if he tricks them. You might as well just kill them. It would be better for them. Okay, so you're drawing consequences, but just give a paraphrase. I say, say someone doesn't understand just the simple meaning of this. So Satan, just describe it. And Satan is going towards this new created world. Start from there. Okay, towards this new created world, and what, and? So that he can... Wait, you're skipping in man there placed. Wait, so did he only Earth. place man on Earth after Satan started heading there? It's no, I think that's where man happens to be placed. Okay. Um, although, in fact, yeah, no, not after Satan started heading there while Satan was falling. Uh -huh. um, so he's going towards this new created world and towards what else? Man. Okay, so go on from there and man placed in this new created world. Go on. See if he can be destroyed by force or by worse, by worse, or yeah. even worse, tricked. Uh, right. And be perverted. Okay, so so Satan is going there to see whether he can destroy man by force. Um, so it's Satan's purpose. So Satan is heading towards the precincts of light with the purpose of assaying if him by force he can destroy. Is that how everyone's interpreting it? I wonder if there's another possibility. <laughs> oh, never mind. I was going to say that when, if it was, if he can destroy God through man, then it wouldn't it have to be a capital H? Like, then you told us that they didn't say Yeah, God. no, that, that, that's um, a possibility. But remember what I said about that absolute construction that is smit with the love of sacred song? And the question is, who is smit with the love of sacred song? There's something similar, not exactly the same, but similar going on here. Does Satan can destroy himself by looking upon him? Um, how about, so, and now through all restraint broke loose, he wings his way not far off heaven in the precincts of light. Um, I have newly created a world and placed man there with purpose to assay if Satan by force can destroy man. Hmm. So, spell and, it out. I mean, that, it's, that God created a world with man to see if Satan could destroy it. Yeah, it's not clear whose purpose it is. In other words, if you, if you leave out the phrase and man there placed, then it's clearly Satan. So now he wings his way not far off heaven in the precincts of light directly towards the new created world with purpose to assay of him by force he can destroy or worse by some false guile pervert. But it could instead be he's going directly towards the new created world and man there placed with purpose to assay if him by force Satan can destroy. So this is pure Job. That is to say Satan and God both have at least one thing that they are agreeing on. 
that they're making a bet. They're agreeing on what they're going to bet on, which is, can Satan do this to man? Now, in the book of Job, God is betting that Satan can't. That is, in the book of Job, um, Satan says humans are terrible um, and you should destroy them all. And God says, well, consider Job, he's really pretty great. And Satan says, well, he's great because you've given him so much, but take it all away and he'll curse you. And God says, all right, go ahead, let's see. Um, so what happens in the book of Job is Satan is saying to God, give me leave to um, put Job under pressure and you'll see that he will curse you. And God says, okay, go ahead. Do what, do what you want, just don't kill him. And so Satan and God agree on the ground rules in the book of Job. Now here it's not quite the same thing because God doesn't expect to win this little bet. He doesn't think Adam will be as good as Job. Although in Paradise Regained, he does think that the son will not hearken to his closing lies. That's the point of Paradise Regained. But the point here is that we turn out to be the stakes for a struggle between God and Satan. It's not only Satan who is using us in order to get at God, but God has left us as bait for Satan. Although what's being tested is whether we'll fall into Satan's um, trap or not. So. The purpose, that phrase with purpose to assay, just to put it simply, the purpose is a shared purpose. God and Satan share the same purpose, namely assaying whether we will fall. Now, they have different reasons for that immediate purpose, but they share a purpose. And that should be a little bit creepy. Yeah? Is it possible that God doesn't completely know how powerful the angels he made are? Um, yeah, he's a little distressed that they capture Satan. Um, and he says, leave him alone, let him go. No. In other words, think of what happens in Eden. You mean that he doesn't know how powerful Satan is? That, like, yeah, that, because like, what he said to Jesus was obvious, or to the son was obviously a joke. Um, because God, um, the son says, ha ha, that was a good one. But do you think at a certain point, he just, he made angels, or like this implies that he made angels and he's not quite sure what they're capable of. That like he made them to, um, to like glorify him, but then once they started rebelling, he doesn't, he doesn't quite, like, well, I guess not. Cause like, I feel like God's one of Satan to work. Well, yeah. Um, I think, now I think he knows what they're capable of, but I think he still doesn't understand um, from the inside what it's like to um, not to be God. Um, in a sense, it's how could he? You know, you, you can, a simple way of asking this question is, which Christian theology answers, but Trinitarian theology answers, is can God feel loss? Um, God is perfect and infinite and omnipresent and omniscient. So how could he know what the experience of loss was like? Um, that would imply some, some um, um, defect in his perfection. So um, there's a strong argument to be made that there are, well, here, I mean, here, here's the, the funny Dumbo version is, can God, can God um, experience a riddle? 
the fun of figuring out the answer to a riddle. Um, no, he knows the answer already um, because he knows the future because he's outside of time. So the pleasure of a riddle is a pleasure God can't have. The pleasure of a joke, of a punchline. Can God read a mystery story and say, whoa, I never would have guessed? No. So there are all sorts of pleasures of finitude that are unavailable to God. I mean, that's the shallow version of what in a deep version would be, does God know what human experience is like? Now, one Trinitarian answer is, well, in the person of the Son, the Son knows what human experience is like. And that's actually a really important fact. Um, but Milton doesn't think, Milton is not a Trinitarian. He does not think that the Son and the Holy Spirit are God in the way that the Father is God. He does not hold with the Nicene Creed. Um, this is subtle in Paradise Lost, but there. But again, that book, Christian Doctrine, what he says there um, is that there's only one God, that the Son is the first of all created beings, but he's a created being. The Son is the greatest of created beings, but he is created. He's not God the way God is God. Um, Unitarianism is um, a related idea. Now we think of Unitarianism as you know donuts and coffee instead of um, the Torah and the Eucharist. Um, but Unitarianism, people were being burnt at the stake for Unitarianism in 1600 still. Um, and the idea of Unitarianism is there is only one God. At Milton, most. At most, yeah. <laughs> um, at the time, it was that there actually was one. It was a Christian form of monotheism. Um, and Milton is close to that, to those views. Um, so just to, look, I'm, I'm going to try to say this very rapidly. Um, God says, the son manages God. God says he's got to die. Um, death for death. It's the rigid satisfaction, death for death. And God continues, die he or justice must, unless another is willing to pay the price. So that is, that is messed up in so many different ways. One is, how is it just if someone who is innocent is punished on behalf of someone who is guilty? But God basically says there has to, there has to be death for death. There has to be an exchange. And then the son does what he does, which is to say, that's great, life for life. So notice he says, I'm just going to paraphrase what you just said. I agree with you. God has said death for death. The son says, yes, life for life. You're absolutely right. And God says, huh, yeah. Um, but at any rate, God says, die he or justice must, unless someone else is willing to die for him. Um, in book four of Paradise Lost, when Satan sees Adam and Eve in Eden, and he says, a gentle pair, ye little think how nigh your change approaches. Such a foe has now entered, yet no purposed foe, since I could pity you, though I unpitied. And then he says, yet, though I melt at looking at you, public reason just demands that I do what else, though damned, I should abhor. And then the narrator says, thus he called upon necessity the tyrant's plea. So Satan says the same thing God did, which is justice demands that I hurt you even though you're innocent. 
God says justice demands that some innocent person die if Adam and Eve and humanity are to be saved, even though they're innocent. And the son says, okay, I'll do it. Satan looks at them and says, justice demands that I hurt you even though you're innocent. And the narrator says, what a noob. Look at him. That's, that's tyranny, the idea that justice demands hurting innocent people. But he doesn't realize God has just said the same thing in the previous book. In book nine, we won't have enough time to talk about Eve, who's really a pretty amazing character. Um, it's very tempting to see Milton as um, anti-feminist, but wrong. Um, but we won't have time to um, make that argument now. But let's just talk about Adam in book nine. In book nine, Eve eats the fruit. Adam sees that she's done this, and he realizes that he now has a choice to make. He could refuse to eat the fruit and let Eve be damned and get a second Eve. Or he can go with her. And he decides he's going to go with her. He's not going to let her alone to be damned by herself. That he, too, is going to allow himself to die in order to stay with her. Yet faithful how they stood, their glory withered. So Adam is doing what who did in book three? Yeah, volunteering to die for a fallen person. Volunteering to die as well for a fallen person. And that's pretty remarkable. And I think Milton sets all of Paradise Lost up so that we can see that what Adam does is great greater than anything Satan does. Whatever Satan does, Adam is even greater. Now, after the fall, Eve is the great character. That's one of the amazing things Milton does. That's what we won't have time to talk about. Before the fall, Adam choosing to fall, he does it for great reasons. After the fall, it's Eve who is the great human character. Um, but that is something to notice, that um, this idea that Satan and God have in which human beings are just pawns, that's finally not the idea that Adam has and not the idea that Eve has and not the idea that the son has and ultimately not the idea that we have. Okay, so study and we will do Marvell, so read your Marvell and then we'll have our, our twiz, our quest. Okay. But do you think I could argue that Eve like isn't 